0: Hello, and welcome to Voices for the Poor podcast. This is part three of the five-part lecture series on Catholic social teachings, hosted by the St. Vincent de Paul Society at St. Joseph's Catholic Parish in Mishawaka. Today, we've got Professor Brian Boyd giving a talk on the universal destination of goods. A little bit of background on Professor Boyd. He is a moral theologian whose interest in how personal virtue and communal flourishing are impacted by social structures. Drawing on economics, history, and sociology, his work seeks to describe the situations we face and judge what is lacking from the perspective of integral human development and offer pathways toward actions for justice. Beyond his dissertation topic of wage justice, his research agenda includes things like the nature of money, along with technological ethics, approached through a mystics. Brian's dissertation on the just wage details the commutative, distributive, and social aspects involved in truly equal exchanges of labor for capital, showing the constrained possibility of offering just wages under the conditions of global capitalism. Boyd discerned his bachelor's, master's in theological studies, and a PhD from the University of Notre Dame, a bachelor's from the University of Oxford, has studied at Georgetown University, as well as the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. This is a really exciting talk that puts the rubber to the road for Catholic social teachings, and I'm sure you guys are going to get a lot out of it. Let's dive right into part three of our lecture series on Catholic social teachings. Enjoy!
1: Thanks you all for being here. Um, yeah, If you want to talk about mystics, it's just like learning how to approach technology in the way the Amish do, like as a society evaluating whether or not it's good for us. It's, it's a wonderful topic. But I'm, I'm here to talk about the universal destination of goods. Okay, so today I'm talking about Catholic social teaching, the universal destination of goods. And I'll give a few examples in the living wage and the uh, traditional concept of the Jubilee. A couple opening quotes to get us thinking like with the, with the church history, with the with the bishops and the popes. St. Ambrose said uh, 17 centuries ago that the earth belongs to everyone, not to the rich. This idea has become elaborated as the universal destination of goods, which is, according to Pope John Paul II, quote, the first principle of the whole ethical and social order. So if you want to build an ethical society, you need to begin with this first principle, the universal destination of goods. And what this means, um, as he wrote in Centius and is that God gave the earth to the whole human race for the sustenance of all its members, without excluding or favoring anyone. And that entails that rightful stewardship of private property must always be directed at and subordinated to the flourishing of all. To make good use of private property, we have to intend it not simply for our own individual well-being, but for the well-being of the community. And so, it's fitting to rejoice in the direct goodness of God's creation, just appreciate the goodness of the world that God has made, but it's also necessary that we participate in the providential distribution of material wealth. The church teaches that God has given this good, the, the goodness of the earth for all of us, but it is up to us in our free will to participate in God's providential plan that everyone have enough. As the catechism puts it, we each need to serve as intelligent and free causes in order to complete the work of creation, to perfect the harmony of creation for our own good and for that of our neighbor's. That's the responsibility God has given us to complete His work of creation. So, y'all have heard the joke that like Catholic social teaching is the best kept secret of the Church. Uh, I think it's a very polite way of putting. Um, Catholic social teaching is a ignored and neglected aspect of Church teaching. But so, just just to begin with some very basics of these concepts will be familiar, but uh, this might be a helpful way to look at them. Human dignity as as the the foundation of like what it is to understand the Church and society. Pope Benedict has a twofold understanding of dignity through dirt and breath, if you read the, read the account of Genesis, of the creation of mankind. In contrast, I mean, we all know Pope Benedict, as a, a little boy, was in the Hitler youth. He had been forced into that on threat of his parents being put into prison. But so he writes, like, in contrast to blood and soil views of, of, of human nature, that, like, our race has this blood, this soil, Genesis tells us that we are all made from the same dust. We're all made from the same earth, regardless of our race, regardless of our background. And then that should teach us the humility, that we are all fundamentally the same. But it's not just that we're formed out of the earth, but that God breathes his spirit into Adam. So God's breathing his breath into Adam means that we all are created in the image and likeness of God. Um, yes, we're all we're rational animals as part of our image, Christ, the Logos, the truth that we follow. But perhaps more importantly, we're also animals made in and for love, and that we image God by returning to that love and responding to it. Because we were loved first, we can love in return. So all of us have this human dignity simply by being human beings, again, uh, from humility and the image of God. But we live into the likeness. Like the, the, the fact that we're in the image of God is irrevocable, just given. But we are more or less in the likeness of God insofar as we are like unto Christ. As St. Irenaeus said, the glory of God is the man fully alive. He means Jesus Christ first and foremost, but we seek to become more and more Christ-like as we grow in the faith. And that process of becoming more like Christ, of actualizing our potential, of living into the likeness of God, is referred to as integral human development. So that concept of developing the whole person like in an integral way, takes body, mind, soul, and spirit and considers all the aspects of what it is to flourish, what it is to really thrive and be excellent and seeks to promote that across all of one's life. So now the reason that the universal destination of goods then is the first principle of the social order is that we need the resources in order to promote our flir- our well-being, not just spiritually, but materially, physically as well. In order to do that, we need to think of ourselves not as individuals versus society, which is kind of the, the way that most of us learn how to do it. It's like, okay, well, it's a zero-sum game. Like, if, if I have an apple, then that means my dad can't have that apple. And so it's, it's either either his apple or my apple, and we, we can't share. Um, and like, it, it is true that, yes, that an apple disappears when one of us eats it. And so like, we could fight over it. But as any good parent knows... I remember my dad saying this when I was a little boy. And he's like, no, I'd rather you have the ice cream. I'll, I'll enjoy seeing you eat it more than me taking the ice cream for myself. But, but even for goods that cannot be shared fully, um, there, there's an aspect where you are better off by is better to give than to receive. And, and that, that's simply for our physical goods, let alone spiritual goods, um, such as an education or knowledge of the truth um, or the love that is shared within a family. So again, so it's not individuals versus society as a zero-sum tug of war. The better way to understand us is as persons in relation to the common good, that our own well-being, our own flourishing, our own integral human development can only be attained in and through the well-being of our neighbors. Because no man is an island. None of us is capable of completely going it alone. We only find meaning and purpose through taking part in communities like the St. Vincent de Paul Society, that have shared ends, shared goals, that we work together as a community to accomplish. So an interesting uh, follow-up from that is it's not just like selfish people uh, versus society, but also the idea of like being selfless or being altruistic is also misleading and harmful because that's it makes you think that you have to like sacrifice yourself in a, in a, in a painful way. Like my dad gave up the ice cream to let me enjoy it when I was a kid but he didn't give up every meal he ever had because he would have starved and then he wouldn't be here today and that would be sad too. And so, it's, it's as C.S. Lewis puts it, you have to focus on the positive virtue of love rather than the negative virtue of selflessness, which isn't traditionally understood as a virtue. Okay, so it's that kind of context of the person and the common good brings us again to the universal destination of goods where, again, because God gave the whole earth for everyone and we're equal in dignity that means that there's no greater natural right to property that one person has than another person. So the church absolutely teaches that private property is a secondary part of the natural law. That's really important that people have responsibility for particular things. Um, But it's not in like a Lockean or libertarian way where you can just say, this is mine, it's mine forever and I don't care what, what else other people think or what else other people might need. It's so like John Locke, who came up with this vision of property, where, where rights are absolute, had a vision of not just like hereditary entailments no matter what poverty is or any circumstances, but also hereditary slavery, where I, I, just as I own my farm and I can pass it on to my children, I own my slaves, and the, 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 the trees that give a fruit on my farm, like those baby trees that come from it, are also mine. And the slaves that give have babies on my farm, their babies are also mine too forever. So like that that sense of property ownership that just gets that has no conditions, no limits, um, winds up having a false possessiveness that tries to set one oneself up as though they were God. The way that the church understands property rights instead is that, as Saint Thomas puts it, all everything we own must be may be held as private, but must be used as common. The goods that we have are for the, the the flourishing of the community and not merely our own well-being. And so and of course that raises a big question like, okay, well, how do we, when there's only one apple, who gets to eat that apple? Like how do we discern the, the best use of that? And so St. Thomas says, he calls it the order of loves, where we just look at the set of responsibilities that we have and build outwards. So you start with your yourself and your family as your immediate responsibility you have to take care of. And then you try to extend out in circles farther and farther and always seeking to grow in your capacity to help others further and further removed from you. Um, I mean, as Jesus says, the Good Samaritan teaches that everyone is our neighbor, but it's still permissible that this society start with our immediate neighbors here in Mishawaka, and then if we have further resources, further capabilities, consider those who are farther away from us. The distinction here is between being benevolent, of willing love, like willing the good for everyone that we come across, and being beneficent, which means actually doing good things to help people. So we have to be benevolent towards absolutely everyone, but we can only be beneficent to as many people as we have time and energy and goods to give and share with them. And so that that's, should be like a huge relief. But at least for me, like I, I was kind of very idealistic growing up. Like, I have to, I have to help everybody. Like, there's so many people hurting. There's, there's so many things to do. Like, how can I fix things? It's like, okay, you're, none of us is responsible for everything. But each of us is responsible for something. Yeah, this, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis on like, like the, the proper balance there, um, it's simply like the church has a history of tithing as like a, a good rule of thumb. Ten percent of your wealth is it's, it's a long-standing rule of thumb. Although that comes in a it was it was made in a time period before the average person was as prosperous as the average person is today, which would seem to say that maybe ten maybe percent's kind of a low ball. I mean, C.S. Lewis's line is basically give until it hurts and then keep giving. You only really know that you're sacrificing enough for the common good if you are foregoing pleasures that you would have that like worthwhile things like that you would have liked to do but you realize are less important than the needs of your neighbor that you serve. Okay so I'll give two examples here quickly um, and then we can uh, I'll wrap up. So uh, why does this idea of the universal destination of goods matter? Um, the first is in the issue of the living wage. Um, I'm drawing this from Monsignor John Ryan speaking of Catholic University um, about a century ago he's a professor at Catholic U. Um, and he was actually nicknamed by people who didn't like him the right reverend New Dealer, because he actually defended FDR in the New Deal um, when people were calling him a socialist. And, and FDR and Father Ryan said, no, actually, uh, the idea of having like, a minimum wage in society, which the Supreme Court had said it was un- unconstitutional in the late 1800s, early 1900s, this is actually a basic component of decency. It shouldn't be against the law. And his argument for living wage is as follows. Um, first, we just take for granted that humans are equal in dignity, either from a theological perspective, like we said in the book of Genesis, or simply like as a philosophical thing, if you're not willing to grant that all people are equal in dignity, equal of res- equally worthy of respect, then there's, there's not much point in doing ethics. Like You can't, in fact, have a conversation at all with someone else. All you can do is fight over who's stronger and who's going to be in charge. Um, so if you don't have that fundamental assumption of human dignity, you can't really start having a society to begin with. The second point that follows from that, though, is that if we're equal in dignity, we each have an equal need to actualize our dignity. We each have an equal um, right to the resources that are necessary to like have a decent life, to support your family, to have some leisure. And so that finally means that private property is legitimate only if reasonable access to it and use of it is given by those who own it. And he's thinking especially about ownership of the means of production. So he's writing in the 1920s when like, factory work is the most important thing. Right, it's also the case now for like, I mean, stock markets. and One big thing I have is employee stock ownership plans, where it's like if you're an employee of a corporation, it's really important that you be given some ownership share in that corporation. Because otherwise, there's not going to be a sufficient sufficient means for living that that's that's granted to all the people of the society. that You, you wind up with a, a small handful of people who have means enough for leisure and all the leisure you can possibly... Not just all the leisure you can imagine, but then the means to like, you know, I really want to go to... I want to build a rocket ship to go to the moon. I want to make space tourism a thing. I want to be a tourist in outer space. So, so they have enough money to make that a reality. When the employees of... Like Jeff Bezos working for Amazon, who who's big on space tourism, um, don't make enough to take any vacations at all. Um, so, um, so that that's one example. Of the living wage as a like an implication of the universal destination of goods. If you're going to found a company and have, make lots of money, that that can be good, but you have to pay all of your employees a living wage before you start building your rocket ships to outer space. And then the second example is the Jubilee. Where it's if you, if you go back 3,000 3, years in history to the ancient Mediterranean, it was actually relatively common practice that if a new person becomes king, like they want to make sure that everyone likes them and can support them in their kingship. So the first thing they would do is cancel the debts that everybody owed to the throne. It's like, all right, well, if you, if you owed the, the previous king any money, then uh, you don't owe him anymore. And that's a good way to help people. Uh, join with you to overthrow the present king so that you can get the, their debts canceled. Um, you can start over. Um, but so like that like common cultural context uh, was written into and changed in Deuteronomy and Leviticus where the land was said not to belong to the king, but very emphatically the promised land belongs to God himself. And so God himself parcels out which of the twelve tribes of Israel are going to live where. And over time, when people buy and sell and move and then things change, um, it actually was kind of an affront to God's plan that, especially that some of the Jewish people wound up losing their homes, wound up being poor and, and homeless. And so, the, so God says, if you will follow these commands, there will be no poor among you. And specifically, the two commands are every seven years, you will cancel all debts. And every seven times seven years, every 49 years, you will cancel the debts and you will redistribute the land back to God's original plan for who gets to live where so that everybody has a home. Because by definition, there will be no homelessness for the Jewish society because the way Joseph went back to the ancestral land in Bethlehem, everyone is to go back to their, their family's original plots. Um, if you go down internet rabbit holes that I do, you might have heard of the Great Reset Um, what's, what's being planned in Davos is not the same as the true Great Reset, where everybody goes back to their ancestral home that the 12 tribes of Israel had. Um, okay. So, but there was a problem with this. When the Jews were exiled to Babylon, they were conquered, and then they they all, they all had to leave, which is that people lost track of where their ancestral land was. Like, like, there's historians argue about just how much the Jewish people actually practice this every 49 years redistribution It's like maybe they did it once or twice. They definitely didn't do it like clockwork for centuries. But definitely after they had been exiled to Babylon and they came back to the promised land like around that area, they had Jerusalem, but nobody knew what their family's homeland was anymore. And so the prophet Isaiah transforms this idea of the, of the Jubilee to um, where it's like the edict of liberation was the original phrase that we're setting the slaves free, we're liberating them. And he, the exact same phrase, the same words in Hebrew, are, are also translatable as the establishment of righteousness. So to be liberated as a slave to be set free is to have righteousness or justice be established. And so he transforms the specific issue of canceling debts, going back to your homeland, and setting slaves free to the general idea of what we now call the preferential option for the poor that all those with power in society and sufficient resources are responsible to making sure that everyone has enough. Neither for the Jewish nor the Catholic tradition has like strict equality of like an absolute egalitarian, everyone has the same amount that that's not Catholic or Jewish teaching, but it's always been sufficiency that no one in, there, there should be no poor among you, that amongst our communities there should be none who are deeply struggling. Well, others have enough and more than it. And so that, that prophecy in Isaiah, for like for, well, it's both, he proclaims the establishment of righteousness um, as a requirement of justice for any Jew at the time, but then he also looks forward to and prophesies that there will be a Savior who does, in fact, establish its righteousness and bring it to come. And of course, in the Gospel of Luke, that's what Jesus reads, I have come to proclaim good news to the sinner, Liberty to captives, sight to the blind, uh, good news to the poor, rather. And Jesus is reading from this pr- prediction in Isaiah that we will be restored and made whole. Again, we will be liberated and made just as one and the same thing. And so, then, that, that proclamation that Christ made in the Gospel of Luke, where to forgive one's sins and, 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 and in the Our Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, it's both metaphorically sins, injustices, and also literally blend expecting nothing thereby for forgiving people who are in debt to us. And so, like, a proper understanding of Catholic social teaching that sees Jesus saying, I come to claim liberty, sight, freedom, doesn't stop with, like, okay, well, Jesus said that, and that was nice 2,000 years ago, but that we are to continue living in that moment where if Christ is truly present among us, if we are the body of Christ, then that proclamation of liberty that Jesus announced and shocked his audience in the temple should be equally shocking and striking from the pulpit at Mass any Sunday. So I, I'm, a, I'm a moral theologian. I'm, I'm blessed that I, I, my, my job is to teach this sort of thing to my students. But my deep problem is what my mentor Alistair MacIntyre called the irrelevance of ethics. That like if you're just an ethicist and you, you write these things on paper and they, they look really nice and they might feel good and sound nice to hear about, but they're never lived out. Then your concepts, no matter how much like they might work in the abstract, are incoherent and ultimately meaningless because you can't point to what it would look like in practice. And so, like, the idea of the Jubilee, or even the idea of a living wage, like, it, it's hard to, people, you know, I'll go to the business school and people say, oh, come on, we, we have to put profits first. Like, how, how are you going to make a, keep your company afloat and still pay, pay a living wage? And without enough, like, concrete examples I can point to of companies that, in fact, are paying a living wage to everyone and still making pretty good profits, then the ethics is irrelevant. It's, it's meaningless. And the same thing with Christians forgiving their debts and pointing to a new way of life where there will be no poor among you. Catholic social teaching risks being just like uh, an inspiring uh, warm, warm blanket without actually being a moral teaching unless we put it into life. And so that's why I'm profoundly excited to hear about the, uh, the no interest lending program that we're talking about here, uh, about the partnership with Father Ken's parish back in Nigeria, as well as working more extensively with, with families in town because it's, we're simply not faith living out the Catholic faith as a parish community if we're not putting these teachings into action. So thank you all so much for being here, and God bless your work.
0: All right, well, there it is, Professor Brian Boyd on the Central Distribution of Goods. Firstly, I want to thank Professor Boyd for coming and speaking at our lecture series, and I want to thank you for listening. We really appreciate it, and we hope you found the lecture enjoyable. Be sure to check out our next two episodes, parts four and five, on Catholic social teaching. That'll conclude our five-part lecture series on Catholic social teachings. Also, if you enjoyed the podcast, make sure you like, subscribe, follow, tell a friend about it. We'd really appreciate it. And with that, we'll let you go. Until next time, peace.